most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Belly. The two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Putting his... Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Uh, welcome to our first presentation of what hopefully will be a long line of introductions to these Orson Welles uh, commentaries. And we'll get into what the Orson Welles commentaries are about and everything. I think Kathy's got some on that. Terry's probably got some too. Um, anyway, we present them for a few weeks, but these are... Uh, there, there were, uh, I was talking to uh, OTR Rob about this, and he said there were eight. He presented them a few years ago, and that's all he could find was eight when he scoured the internet. Well, now there are 55 plus, I think, available and in great sound. I mean, I think that everybody probably would be impressed with the sound quality of these recordings. And I think they're from Orson's own collection is why this kind of exists and is out there now. And it's just exciting. So we thought we would bring these to you. And he covers so much ground and talks about so many things each episode. There's going to be plenty for us to talk about in each individual episode. But he just does such a beautiful job. I, I cannot believe what he can fit into 15 minutes. Anyway, let's go over to Kathy and she can share whatever she'd like about that. So, Kathy, what do you what do you think? Well, or... I hope we'll I hope we'll post in the notes that wonderful ad newspaper ad I had found when he had started his the newspaper column. Correct. In the was it of uh, uh, spring of forty five or forty four? And there, um, uh, as I said, and and reminds me, Daryl, of uh, to compliment you on what I think of as the Citizen Kane, yes, uh, uh, suit here of him sitting in his uh, Xanadu, of uh, of uh, you know that's at behind his desk. But um, uh, uh, the I love that the advertising still talked about him as the Wonderkin. You know, he's a, he scared us with, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, men from Mars. He um, amazed us with Citizen Kane. And now he's a columnist. Yes. And um, I understand the newspaper uh, column didn't last very long uh, because uh, uh, it, he was erratic in producing it. And a lot of papers found it too liberal and eh. But um, uh, thank you. I'm so um, grateful that you've introduced me to these commentaries. They do sound like they were recorded yesterday. And his, even though he's not very old, he's got a gravitas in his voice, such a theatrical guy. Yes. And it would have been marvelous. I understand these programs were um, 15 minutes long on the brand new ABC network that had radio network that had been at uh, NBC Blue. Right. Sunday afternoons, one o'clock Eastern time. Um, so they were on once a week. And um, from what I understand among uh, radio historians and Wells scholars, these things have a high reputation. And I'm sorry, I'd never heard about them before. Uh, well, it's a great I'm time like, to hear about uh, them when they all exist. Cause if you would have heard about them 10 years ago, you would have heard eight <laughs> yeah. and, no, with, so. and with bad sound. <laughs> 
What a, what a marvelous resource and what a fascinating time just here at the end of World War II when yes. so much is up in the air. The world's been on fire and he's he's um, giving us political and ideological commentary. You know, he's being funny. He's being profound. Um, and it just it echoes today because yes. I think the world's sorry not to get too political. The world seems similarly on fire today and to have anybody have an, an optimistic or hopeful or idealistic viewpoint instead of sort of wallowing as is so easy to do and everything on fire right now. I wish we had an Orson Welles yes. right now. Yes. Right. Yes. He's, he's awesome. And, and it's just fun to listen to him. Terry, what are your kind of insights into this one? Well, I'll go a little further than Kathy did. Uh, Orson Welles was very political. Um, he was, um, oh, I yeah. think by most uh, standards uh, considered left of center, very progressive. Yes. Um, not to be confused with pro-communist. He um, had an understanding of and an appreciation for what was happening in the Soviet Union, but not to the point of accepting their dictatorial approach to, um, to that form of government. Uh, and he did get into um, a little bit of trouble and uh, the House on american Activities Committee was, uh, of course, investigating everybody who they thought might uh, right. have some... Uh, left leanings, but uh, Orson Welles was definitely politically progressive and not shy about it. Um, these words were his. It wasn't like he was being hired uh, by someone else to read right. um, a script. And Lear and, comes out the, the, the and says, well, we don't necessarily agree with anything he's saying, which we're used to right. hearing that now, but back then I think that would be kind of... Sure, because you, you know probably. business is business and they wanted everybody to buy their product and not just right. those who, who agreed with the, the politics of Orson Welles. The other thing that I found interesting was that in those uh, three topics that he covers in this particular commentary, um, the range is all over the place. He, he has international interests and I, I don't remember this, but I had the impression that Welles actually had traveled to China. He was well-traveled. So it yes. wouldn't shock yeah, me if he had actually been there. That's what he says, that he yeah. met the father before Right, the right. So yeah, it I don't like think a he'd be story. making that all up. I, I, I don't, don't think, think so either. And then, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, talking about uh, the um, Secretary of State, um, Baird, Jim, yes. James Baird, I think. Jimmy Baird. Um, right, Jimmy Baird, uh, Baird uh, who um, was only Secretary of State for a few years at the end of uh, this, during that, that slice of time between the end of the Second World War and, and the um, transition into the Cold War. But he was not shy about criticizing him. Correct. He did it obliquely, but you were, it was very well, clear. Well, that's probably why he, he went was, away. Was doing that. Well, <laughs> he it, criticized you know, by Orson. It, they're like, it, he's out of here. <laughs> it couldn't have hurt. It couldn't have helped. Um, <laughs> and then the last, the last thing I'll say is that uh, just as, as Kathy pointed out, his, his way of speaking was so wonderful that uh, obviously he was able to, to use it in, Right. Uh, theat in a theatrical way and uh, selling um, what was the wine? Paul Masson wine? Yes. Sell the wine yes. before yes. it's so, time. You know? that's right. uh, he, he really knew how to use uh, that instrument. Sell no cab yeah. before it's time. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and so it was a delight to hear. Yes. But, I agreed. And this, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no. To just tie it back to Jack Benny, at this very same time, he was using um, a promoting uh, Orson Welles was prodding the US military and government uh, that Jack was going on USO tours and he wanted to bring Eddie Anderson with him. But the USO and the US Army would not allow 
a black performer to be with a white performer. They couldn't travel together in a mixed race group. And so Eddie Anderson could not go with Jack. And Orson was publishing quite, I have a quite a collection of newspaper clips from newspapers of Orson saying, gee, Jack Benny, why don't you pressure the military to let Rochester come with you? So it was a um, familiar theme for him, by the way. Wells was very strongly opposed to, uh, to racism of any kind. Correct. Correct. Well, one of the first things he did before he even did any radio was he was doing a performance of, I want to say it's Macbeth, where he did it with an entire black cast and he was the director of that. And uh, to me, that was so progressive. That's, it was 1935, 36, somewhere in there. Yeah, and, and that's pretty impressive. And he went right, right from that. It, it, of course, got acclaim and everything. And then from that, he kind of, he was really good at parlaying everything to move on to the next phase of his career. And then he got and conquered radio, essentially. And then he goes from radio and goes right into Citizen Kane from that. And then, but really after that, he kind of swerved back into radio for a while and did some, I, I don't, I think he went, my, my feeling is he went so far over budget with that and took so much extra time that the oh, studios were like, we'll, I don't we'll know. Have this, we'll have this discussion another uh, another introduction. He was that he was also pushed. William Randolph Hearst was determined to try and ruin his career after Citizen Kane. So let's just say, yeah, he was let's save that. Choice, we got plenty of time. But he's also reacting to a whole lot of other things. Stuff going on. So I, see, that's what's great. That's why I wanted to have you folks on because I knew you could bring a historical perspective to it that I can't, and I just enjoy it. Uh, before we go, let me just say on this. The beginning section that is on a, a, a kid that he knew or saw being born, that's name was you. It's very uh, poetic, very wonderful section, a, a wonderful tribute to this boy and his family and, and uh, the impact it had on Orson. And then the whole talk about the confusion uh, machine is so interesting. I tried to do some research on it. I couldn't find much on the confusion machine. I've heard that story from other people, though, so I think it must be true. Uh, But Orson will go all into it. You'll hear all about the confusion machine, which is really interesting. Um, And then he he goes from those topics to doing a, a... uh, just a dramatic reading that he does that is beautiful in this in this piece. And so uh, I, it was a great piece to introduce you guys to it because he really covers a lot of ground here. He always does, but just uh, the fact that he uses lots of different, uh, the range of his voice in different ways to really emphasize different things in this, is a, it's a great 15-minute piece. And we'll be back again next week to talk about another one. I assume you guys want to keep doing these ones because they're pretty cool. Yeah. All right. We will keep doing that. So uh, thank you guys and enjoy uh, another Orson Welles commentary. And we'll bring him to you every Wednesday if we do Orson Welles Wednesday. And so for uh, we'll see you next Welles Wednesday. This is Orson Welles speaking. Today I'd like to talk about a little boy in China and two Americans, the Secretary of State and a musical composer, also one of the strangest of all British inventions, the confusion machine. I'll get to that in just a minute. Soon, you're going to see many new radio sets in the market again. One of them will have a name you may not have heard before. That name is Lear, L-E-A-R. It really isn't a new name in radio, for Lear has been making aircraft radios since 1930. 
These have been exacting sets, which had to have the most foresighted engineering design and the very finest craftsmanship. It is these radio sets which have led people to say that Lear is the name men fly by. In addition to these aircraft radios, Lear is now building fine radios for your home. Lear radios include the Lear wire that remembers. This is wire recording made so sure and simple that with a flick of a switch, you can make true-to-life records of your children's voices, the songs and talents of your friends, or radio broadcasts right from the air. The secret is a spool of slim wire that glides over a magnet. This picks up every note, tone, and inflection and holds them ready to be played back as often as you wish. It records all this for you to keep indefinitely if you want to, but whatever you don't want can be erased any time simply by recording something else over it. I'll tell you more about them a little later. Now, Mr. Wells brings you his views and opinions on events as he sees them. The opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. It was fall, early fall. One of those dry, cold, bittersweet days I've never found anywhere except in North China. Exciting weather, autumn in Peking. Like spring in the States. I don't care how young you are, you never feel young enough to cope with that kind of day. And I was very young. This was quite some time back. I can still taste the wind that blew that day through the forbidden city out of the western hills like sharp, dry wine. I don't care how young you are in that kind of weather, you can feel the chill earth of your grave under the soles of your feet. You remember you were born to die. But you feel very much like getting on with the wonderful, temporary business of being alive. I don't care how old you are on that kind of day, you're looking for an excuse to tell yourself that you're in love. Just breathing is fun. There aren't many of those days in one average lifetime. That's why I remember this one. No, I didn't fall in love. I heard the first cry of a small Chinese citizen saying hello to the world. I saw his father's face at that breathless and beautiful moment. Just exactly then, I decided to be a father myself sometime. I left the Orient soon after that. I was back in the States, back in school, when I read in the papers what happened at the Marco Polo Bridge. The young Chinese father mentioned it in his next letter to me. We are hoping there will be a prompt end to this unpleasantness, he said. Our son, little Yu, has cut his first tooth. The letters stopped coming pretty soon. Then the years went by, and one day, sure enough, I was a father myself, just as I determined to be that distant autumn in North China. Well, Rebecca's mother had a birthday last week. And that got me to thinking of birthdays and mothers generally, and then about little you specifically, whose birthday, if my calculations aren't all cockeyed, belongs about here on the calendar. Because I've lost his address, and more importantly, because for so long he lost his address, I'm sending him herewith by radio a birthday card. Dear you, and while no pun is intended, ladies and gentlemen, it really might be you, Dear you, much has happened in the world since you came into it. You know what's happened in your part of it. Maybe you haven't had the chance to find out what's been going on over here. Well, since I left your house, we've had a depression and a great president who told us we had nothing to fear but fear itself and whom we believed. We tried to pretend that what was happening in your country was no concern of ours, but there came a day in December when we found out how wrong we were. After Pearl Harbor, we were in it all the way with you. And now, as you may have heard, we're saying that China and our other allies have no business helping us run conquered Japan. We won't discuss that matter in a birthday greeting or go into your country's still undeclared civil war 
These are painful subjects, and my purpose is only to cheer you with a word of hope. You have the right to great hopes. So has everybody who is 14 years old today, even if, like you, they've never lived in all those 14 years through one single day of peace. Happy birthday to you. Well, a friend of mine just off the clipper from England tells me one of the weirdest stories I've heard in this war. It's in the early days before the first Blitzkrieg when the English people were guarding their little island with what amounted to cap pistols and wooden rifles. It was before Lend-Lease and before all their war industries had gotten underway. A number of British scientists got together and after considerable discussion put together a device made out of radio tubes and every sort of wheel, wire, and gimmick you can imagine. This thing was carefully made to look as though it had some purpose, as though it could do something, something unknown and probably dangerous. Actually, it was pure Rube Goldberg, nothing else. The thing was known to British intelligence as the confusion machine. And 500 of these were manufactured and dropped by parachute over Germany. Occupation forces have discovered them whole and in parts in the principal laboratories and universities of the Reich. The confusion machine had its purpose after all. That purpose was to confuse the German mind. And recent interviews with German scientists have shown that it succeeded brilliantly. Long articles and lengthy lectures were presented in support of this and that theory about the strange, the incomprehensible British invention. Kept a lot of the top enemy inventors away from inventing anything themselves. Certainly, the confusion machine was one of the queerest weapons ever used in the war. And it was certainly successful. Well, readers of my newspaper column, and you radio listeners know by now, what I think of the job Jimmy Burns is doing as Secretary of State. Well, in Washington, day before yesterday, he gave an off-the-record talk to the Overseas Writers Club on the London Foreign Minister's Conference. You remember what a flop it was. Burns told about his great difficulties with the Russians, particularly Molotov. He said because of the conference rule of unanimity, it's practically impossible to send out official information. Again, Burns emphasized the importance of a free press. He uses it, you know, as one of his criterions in judging whether to recognize new governments. Now, all these remarks on the subject of political democracy are perfectly fine, and all these criticisms of the Soviet Union are absolutely valid, but the bromide, practice what you preach, really applies here, and I'll tell you why. Burns was stressing freedom of the press, but the group he was speaking to was not observing that freedom. According to one official I talked to on the phone yesterday, Burns refused to speak to the Overseas Writers Club unless it was composed only of Americans working for the American papers. One reporter, a member of the club for many years, was asked, please, to stay away because he represented TASS, the Soviet news agency. Well, I can't resist mentioning that Jimmy Burns, who's made so many brave speeches about the free press, free elections, and human rights, is the proud son of a poll tax state. Of course, he's perfectly right to want to see to it that everybody in Eastern Europe gets the vote. But while he's so busy in the Balkans, our Secretary of State seems to have lost sight of the fact that an awful lot of people in South Carolina, where he comes from, don't have the vote either. Well, I seem to remember a word or two in the Bible about the moat in your neighbor's eye not being something you can talk about with much authority when you've got a beam in your own. I know an old lady who reads the Bible all the time and who says international affairs these days would make more sense if we had more of the good old Christian virtue of charity. That, of course, doesn't mean whitewashing what's bad, she says, and charity doesn't mean giving money to the poor. That's the smallest part of it, she said. She's asked me to read a section of a letter on the radio. It was written some time back by a very persuasive missionary. 
Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But then that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three but the greatest of these is charity. And now your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. L-E-A-R. That spells Lear. And that's a name you're going to see on some of the finest radios you've ever listened to. It's a name that's been on aircraft radios for more than 15 years. Now it's on home radios. Radios made with rare skill, fine craftsmanship, and understanding of what lies ahead. With a Lear radio, you're sure to get every worthwhile advance that there is. I've already told you about the wire recorder. Then there's an entirely new way of tuning the sets, a development that's going to surprise you. In these new Lear radios, you can have television, high-fidelity, static-free FM, and there's new, easily-tuned shortwave for foreign broadcasts. You might expect that with all these features, Lear radios would cost a lot, but they don't. There are sets at whatever you wish to pay. At the top of the line is a very handsome console, including television, wire recording, and the best of everything that costs about $500. On the other hand, a good-looking table model sells at the $19.95 level. Radios like these have never been available before. So when you hear a Lear radio, expect to be thoroughly pleased. You'll know right away that there is extra worth for every dollar you pay for a radio with a nameplate Lear. I'll have more words about that next week. You've heard about the barber of Seville, but I wonder if you've heard about the barber of Philadelphia. If not, I think I can safely predict that you will, because young Samuel Barber is, to my way of thinking, one of the best American composers of these times. Columbia has just released Mr. Barber's first symphony, a fine recording by Bruno Walter and the New York Philharmonic. Maybe you've been frightened away sometimes from what is known as modern music. That's a phrase I hate. It's meaningless. It's only used by people who don't know what they're talking about. 
What most people mean who use the phrase is that the music under discussion is to them discordant or harsh or dissonant or that it uses a harmonic scheme too abrasive to be pleasing in the ordinary way. Now, dissonance, as you don't need Dr. Einstein to explain, is purely a matter of relativity. What was considered dissonant in the time of Bach and Handel was not dissonant to Chopin's audiences. And what displeased the diehards at the first Tchaikovsky performances was considered rather sentimental and old-fashioned by the time George Gershwin was born. You know, the great thing about music is you don't have to throw away any of your old loves in order to make room for the new. You can keep loving the classic composers and the romantics and the impressionists. You can add to them occasionally without making them uncomfortable. The works of a contemporary was the real McCoy. And Samuel Barber is the real McCoy. You know, Europe's been ahead of us in serious music. Usually our composers have been under the psychological handicap of this knowledge. And their creative output has fallen into one of two pitfalls. They've either written in a derivative style, which is completely subservient to and a poor imitation of better European masters, or the other extreme. They've been so anxious to prove that they were completely American and under no foreign influence that they've composed music which is forced and defiant and without any real or valid inspiration. But I think the time's coming now when we'll take our musical place with pride among all the nations. We have some pretty good talent working these days with pen and score paper. There's Aaron Copeland and Bernard Herrmann, Mark Blitzstein, Paul Creston, Virgil Thompson, William Schumann, others whom you'll be hearing more and more about. And don't forget Samuel Barber, whose swell new first symphony is available at this moment in your music store. You know, I can't emphasize strongly enough the importance of the phonograph and the role the recording has nowadays, giving a hearing to what these men are writing. Not many of us are within access of the concert hall, but today, the musical audience is limitless. More people will hear Samuel Barber's first symphony this week than heard the compositions of Johann Sebastian Bach during his entire lifetime. Well, the clock says I've got to stop now. Please let me call again, and thanks for this time. This is the American Broadcasting Company. 10.30 at KECA, Los Angeles, transcribed.